Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Friends, the delightful and the delicious irony of the book of Esther. Haman hanged on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai. Now this evening takes a darker turn, doesn't it? I wonder how you felt as we read these closing chapters. Have you ever come across anything like this in all the Bible? It'd be very easy, wouldn't it, to get to the end of chapter 7 like I said, and to be satisfied that the villain of this piece has had his comeuppance. And so now surely the disaster facing the Jewish people, it can just melt away and be done with. It can go away. If if Haman is dead, surely that decree can just fall by the wayside and all is well that ends well. Except, of course, it isn't. It doesn't. And the story ends this evening with blood flowing in the streets, flowing in the streets on a truly horrifying scale with God's own people being the ones doing the slaughtering. Sometimes you get a shock like this, don't you? Some of you will remember years ago, I can remember the shock of this. Uh, Well, you see this sort of thing, don't you? You see it from time to time, like a TV comedian, you're watching somebody and you're happily laughing away with them and And then, to your surprise, the comedian crosses the line and the mood changes in the room and your discomfort grows. Some of you will remember, do you remember the series that used to be on TV? Many people loved it, Downton Abbey. Remember watching Downton Abbey on TV? And uh, one year in the run-up to Christmas, there was going to be a Christmas special, and we all gathered around the TVs, everybody stuffed full of turkey, sitting watching Downton Abbey, Christmas Day, and Christmas Day of all days, Matthew died. Remember that? Remember the shock? Christmas has never been the same again uh, since, since that. Is this in front of us this evening, is this a happy ending spoiled? The king's edict granted the Jews, make no mistake, granted the Jews the right to annihilate anyone who might attack them and their women and their children. Esther in chapter 9, verse 13. What did you make of Esther? The, the, the queen who has stood so tall, so beautiful, so majestic. If it please the king, chapter 9, verse 13, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman, let their dead bodies be hanged on the gallows. The book of Esther requires us to face these hard questions head on. I wonder, I wonder if any of you remember the name Barak Goldstein. You maybe don't. 1994, terrible event in the news. Barak Goldstein was a Jewish gunman. And in 1994, after he heard the book of Esther read at the annual feast of Purim, so the, the feast that is yeah, all, that, all that length of detail, you see it from chapter 9, verse 20, right through to the end. It's as if the writer just keeps saying, you need to know we are never, ever going to stop celebrating this. 
the casting of the lots, that the purr has become immortalized in Jewish history. We are going to celebrate this forever. And in 1994, at the annual feast of Purim, Barak Goldstein heard the book read, and he went out and slaughtered 55 Palestinians and wounded 170 more. Here are three chapters that end with death and feasting, that end with de- destruction and celebration. And I think because of that, these are chapters that speak so profoundly to us today. I want to give us two points to guide us into the narrative and out the other side uh, if we can. Two points. Here's the first one. Number one, justice for evil is necessary. Justice for evil is necessary. It is imperfect now, but it will be perfect one day. Make no mistake, justice for evil is necessary, and yet in our day today, it is imperfect. Only one day will it be perfect. I've called this sermon, The God Who Turns the Tables. And here is where the point really comes home to roost, isn't it? What what the writer wants us to notice is just how precisely everything has gone in reverse. You get it explicitly, don't you? In chapter 9, verse 1, the reverse occurred. Obviously, a great reversal as Haman ends up on the gallows instead of Mordecai. But look how careful the writer is. If you like, he's kind of in these last chapters pressing the rewind button, only now with everything looking completely different. So here's a really quick summary of the reversal, okay? You you don't want to look at all these, but let me just show you what's happening here. Chapter 3, verse 10, the king gives Haman a ring. Chapter 8, verse 2, the king gives Mordecai the same ring. Chapter 3, verse 12, Haman summons the scribes to issue his orders. Chapter 8, verse 9, Mordecai summons the scribes to issue his orders. Chapter 3, verse 12, letters are written, sealed with the ring. Chapter 8, verse 10, letters are written, sealed with the very same ring. Chapter 3, verse 13, Haman's decree says that the Jews, even women and children, are to be killed on one day. Chapter 8, verse 11, the enemies, even women and children, are to be killed on one day. Chapter 3, verse 15, the city of Susa is bewildered. Chapter 8, verse 15, the city of Susa is rejoicing. Look at Mordecai himself, chapter 8, verse 15. It it has to be significant, doesn't it, that we're told he's wearing royal garments and a crown and a purple robe of fine linen. Do you remember what he wore in chapter 4? Sackcloth and ashes. The the, the turned tables are everywhere, aren't they, in this story? Look at verse 5 of chapter 9. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. That language of doing what they pleased, it's exactly what the king and Haman were like. You remember their, their little pact over wine together? If it pleases you, my Lord, this is what we'll do. And yet now here is this despised people on the very brink of genocide with the power and the freedom to do as they pleased. Friends, here is the first thing to see. Justice for evil is necessary. 
Justice for evil is necessary. It is something we want and it is something we need. There's no doubt at all in these chapters. There is plenty here to make us uncomfortable. I was more uncomfortable reading it out loud than I was in my study all week long. And we're going to come to that in just a moment. But there are actually a number of details built into the story here to make us sit up and to notice that whatever we think of these ancient methods of justice, God's people here are not simply cut loose on a path of mindless bloodshed and spiteful revenge. No, look at chapter 8, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. See, that, that verse is telling us that the king and Esther and Mordecai have a problem, don't they? In this world, the king's prior decree to annihilate the Jews, it cannot simply be canceled. He he cannot reverse it. He can't just say, forget that. He cannot quash it. He cannot stop it. He cannot undo it just by issuing another decree. All he can do is issue a counter decree. Verse 11. He can issue a decree that allows the Jews to protect themselves. Do you notice the direction of travel here? They are allowed to destroy and to kill anybody, look at verse 11, that might attack them. This is not a decree that allows the Jews to now attack preemptively, to to get in there first, to go around doing to others what they would have had done to them if they hadn't struck first. No, this is the granting of the opportunity that they would not have had for self-defense in the face of violent threat and completely unwarranted attack and persecution. Now, yes, chapter 9, verse 3, yes, they gather to lay hands on others, but look at the wording again. They gather to lay hands on those who sought their harm. Now, that's not the right verse. Is it chapter 8, verse 3? Uh, Verse 2, sorry, chapter 9, verse 2. To lay hands on those who sought their harm. Now, here's two other things to notice. Did you notice that they did not actually seem to do everything that the decree allowed them to do? They did not plunder their enemy's property. Three times we're told that in chapter 9, we're told that as if for emphasis. And if it's right, friends, to read this edict as allowing them to annihilate women and children, we are very pointedly not told about that happening. So that it does seem that only combatants were killed by the Jews. But here's the second thing. I think this is what opens it up for us. Here's the thing we need to know. If, if the Jews here are defending themselves from their assailants, okay, and if the decree has gone out through the, through the whole of the 127 provinces that on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, the Jews will be allowed to defend themselves. If that message has gone out, and if you knew of Haman's downfall, and if you knew of Mordecai's rise to power, and if you knew that the Jews were stockpiling weapons and were prepared to defend themselves, and you still attacked them, on that day, as many obviously did. 
Friends, think how much you would have to hate God's people to do that. Do you see that? It's one thing to be willing to take up arms against them if Haman's degree is granting you a whitewash victory. That's what they had up to this point. You're going you're to annihilate them and destroy them. It'll be 10 nil, hands down. It's one thing to do that, but it is quite another thing to take up arms to attack the Jews, as many obviously did when you know you will have a brutal, bloody fight on your hands. Friends, doesn't the book of Esther say to us that sometimes, in some places, and in every age of world history, sometimes the hatred of God's people is deeper and stronger and more powerful than virtually any force on earth? Some people will hate God's people more than they love their own lives. Are we really shocked? Are we, are we really appalled when in the, face, in the face of that kind of hatred, Esther says justice is necessary? Justice for evil is necessary. I came to church in the morning with my whole family for prayers and worship, but I returned home with no one. My mom took her last breath in my arms. My dad and my sister died. Those are the words of Shalom Nazir, a teenager in Pakistan. You may remember several years ago, a bomb blast at All Saints Church in Peshawar in Pakistan in the middle of church that annihilated so many during the service, the deadliest ever attack on the Christian community in Pakistan. Bodies blown apart, families torn apart forever, because to be a Christian is to be aligned with the West, and to take your side with everything that is evil, everything that needs to be eradicated from the earth. Oh, countless families arrived for worship and returned home, separated forever. Friends, you and I this evening in this part of the world, isn't it true? We have enjoyed unprecedented peace in our lives, unprecedented, in a way that many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world do not experience. And while we may rightly flinch at difficult texts like Esther, many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world read these chapters as life support for them life support for their faith and their love for Christ. So, what should you and I do with it now, today? I don't know if you remember that bomb blast in Pakistan. A week later, as the funeral services were taking place, security services guarded the doors. There were guns at church. Security services guarded the congregation. But Esther says, should it be the Christians themselves taking up arms? Should they protect themselves? Was Barrett Goldstein right to do what he did? No, I think the broken-hearted worshipers in Pakistan who did not take up arms, who came to worship, who allowed the security forces to protect them, who entrusted safety to them, I think they were right. And for this reason, justice for evil is necessary. We want it. We need it. We long for it but it is not perfect in this world. And it is not ours to take 
perfectly in this world. You've got to hold these two things together, haven't we? Justice for evil is necessary. We want it. Think about the latest awful shooting in Texas, the Ovalde school shooting. Innocent children dead and dying or held at gunpoint. Parents outside knowing that the shooter is still at large in the building. Parents do not shrug their shoulders, do they, outside and say, oh, well, let's carry on and see what happens at the end, going about their business as normal. No, no, it must end. Somebody must do something. Somebody must put a stop to it. Somebody must bring the rule of righteous law to bear in this situation. Every fiber of our being knows that, doesn't it? Justice for evil is necessary. But, but, this side of eternity, we need to know that justice is always, always imperfect. One day it won't be. Praise God, it won't be. But I think even these chapters show us the limits of justice, don't they, in the hands of people like us. See, what, what, what do you make of Esther and the death of Haman's ten sons? Standard practice in ancient warfare. You didn't just kill the king. You killed his children, his family. You eradicated the line. You, you solved the problem once and for all so that there can no longer be a vengeful coup in a few years down the line. Okay, maybe that is just about acceptable to us, but what about Esther's next step of having them hung for public humiliation? Again, we're told it was a standard custom, but by our standards, it is barbaric, isn't it? Might we expect better from Esther here? Perhaps. Actually, I, I think we should. Here is where I do think the writer is perhaps hinting at a dark seam in her character that we're not meant to ignore. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar. And they killed 300 men in Susa. I wonder if you notice that it is because of Esther's extra request here that the bloodshed continues beyond its appointed time. When was it meant to take place? On the 13th day. That's what the edict said. And now here it is continuing on the 14th day because of Esther's words. Maybe there were reasons for this we know nothing about. Maybe it shows us that few of us could handle power like this without yielding to its intoxicating consequences. Whatever the reason, friends, here is certainly what it shows us. For justice, for true justice, ultimate justice, we need a warrior with clean hands and a pure heart, don't we? We need a warrior with clean hands and a pure heart. We need a judge who is so very like us, who, who knows and understands our pain and sees the evil that has crushed us and robbed us. And we need a judge who is so very unlike us, who does not have the kind of anger rising in his soul which seeks revenge and to maim and to wound and to destroy more than simply to punish. Well, friends, Esther teaches you and I to love God's justice 
To love the fact that he loves his people with a love stronger than death, more jealous and passionate than the deepest love of husband and wife, or fiercely protective than even the love of mother and father for their children. You are that safe with God. We are that safe with him. Esther teaches us, doesn't it, to sing with the psalmist. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. And when he comes, he will judge the world in righteousness, the peoples with equity. Do you remember the words of the Apostle Paul? Do not take revenge, my friends but leave room for God's wrath. Do you see it? Justice is coming. Justice is coming. Leave room for God's wrath. It's interesting, isn't it, that phrase, leave room for it. We often fill the space with something else. No, that cannot be right. No, leave room for it. Have space for it in your mind and heart, your thinking. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. One day justice will be done perfectly, righteously, cleanly, purely. God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, says Paul, and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Friends, do not doubt it. Do not fear it. Do not dislike it. Number two, I want to finish with this very briefly. Number two, celebration for deliverance is fitting. Celebration for deliverance is fitting. Justice for evil is necessary. Celebration for deliverance is right, fitting. It is partial now. It will be unending one day. It is partial now. It will be unending one day. And so it is in Esther that there is joy and feasting on the other side of death. Again, I think we need to see the writer is so careful. Whoever wrote this book down, so careful again. We must notice this is not a celebration of death and bloodshed. No, this is what we end up having today in our day, isn't it? Celebrating or commemorating Bastille Day or Revolution Day or all the other ways in which we commemorate what has happened at particular moments. It's common. You observe how here we're told that the Feast of Purim, do you notice that the celebrating comes after the day of violence? If Purim was meant to be celebrated on the 13th day of every month, do you see what would be happening? You would be celebrating the violence. No, the, the celebration comes on the 14th day, the day after it. Where the killing had gone on to the 14th day, then the celebration moves to the 15th day. What they are celebrating is that a man called Haman cast lots to destroy them, but that very day forecast for their destruction turned out to be the very day of their deliverance. It is rescue and life and survival that they're jubilant about, isn't it? I think in life, friends, I imagine that there is no joy like the joy of being rescued. Not that long ago with our family, we watched the film version of the uh, the landing of the plane in the Hudson River. Captain Sully, some of you have seen it, a true story. Um, flight 1549, double, a bird strike took out both engines, and the plane is heading down to the water. Every passenger is expecting 
to be in an icy grave. And miraculously, the, the captain manages to land the plane at exactly the right angle. And even though you know the outcome, you know what happens. It's a film very worth watching. By the end of it, my, my, myself and my, my boys, we had sweaty palms at the end of it, just uh, get, getting to the end of the story. And what makes it so amazing is that the, the film with the actors, at the very end, they blend the film with real-life footage of the people coming off the plane being rescued. And the people that you see on the TV screen at the very end, people who moments ago thought they would be dead, are some of the most grateful people you will ever see. Almost in shock to still be alive, to have had life given to them, granted to them where they thought death was coming. Oh, friends, the, 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 there is greater joy on the other side of a disaster than never having been through that disaster in the first place. There, there will be greater joy at the end in Christ's presence for there ever having been a fall and a world of pain. It's an incredible truth that the Bible holds out to us. There is greater joy, greater glory ahead of us because of that. Tim Keller uses the illustration of the, the, the parent who lies in bed with the nightmare of her husband and children all being murdered, a, a terrible dream. And, and then she wakes and she goes from room to room and discovers that all her family are sleeping safely and soundly. And she feels a rush of overwhelming love and joy that was there, yes, when she lay down to sleep, but was not immediate or heightened in her experience. Keller says it's a mere foretaste of what the end will be like. Purim celebrating deliverance, the Passover celebrating deliverance from Egypt, the, the Lord's Supper, the table laid out in front of us as we eat and drink, and remember the Son Himself given up to death and darkness so that we never enter it. Oh, one day the blood of the martyrs will stop flowing, and the Lord Jesus Himself will return to deliver His people. One day the suffering church will become the church triumphant and glorious. And you know what the Bible says we will do then? What happens at the end? What's the picture of the end? Listen to the prophet Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, that at the end, because of our deliverance from death, we will sit down and eat, but at the end of the table, God Himself eats, and He does not eat the same thing as us. What does God eat? We eat aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines, and God Himself swallows up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all the earth. That's why they're celebrating, isn't it? Disgrace removed. The Lord has spoken, Isaiah says, in that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice 
and be glad in his salvation. So may it be. Amen.